we have technically concluded our study of the Twelve Apostles. We've seen the lives of these perfectly ordinary men transformed by coming in contact with Jesus. Simon really did become Peter, the rock, just like Jesus predicted. The son of thunder became the apostle of love. The tax collector and the revolutionary worked side by side and were transformed into completely different people because of the time that they spent with Jesus. You see, when people come in contact with Jesus Christ, He changes them. He changes their lives. And maybe, just to build on what we looked at last week, maybe that's why Judas wasn't changed, because he didn't really submit his life to Jesus the way that those others did. Afterward, filled with remorse, he went out and he hanged himself. And so the remaining 11 apostles set about choosing someone to fill Judas's place. It was symbolically important for them to have 12, just like there were 12 tribes of Israel. They had two candidates. They cast lots. The lot fell on a man named Matthias. We don't know anything about Matthias. I'm sure he was a, a devout man. I'm sure he was a devoted follower of Jesus. In fact, we know from Acts chapter 1, he was a disciple from the beginning up through the resurrection, the ascension, because that was the qualification to be one of the twelve. But we never read anything more about him. We never even find his name again after that mention in chapter 1. But there is one more man who's numbered with the apostles. And in spite of not being part of the twelve, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't have a lesson on him, even if I'm technically cheating by throwing him in here with the rest of these. Except for Jesus himself, no person had a greater impact on the history of the church than Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul. But before Saul met Jesus on the Damascus Road, that thought would have been absolutely abhorrent to him. He couldn't have imagined ever having that distinction of being instrumental in the history of this Jesus movement. Now, we know a lot about Saul, far more than we do most of the other apostles. But let's think a bit about his background. Saul was born just around the turn of the first century in the city of Tarsus, which was an important city in Asia Minor. He probably grew up going to a Greek school because it was a Greek city. But his parents were devout Jews, and so they wanted to see him have the best Jewish education that he possibly could. And so they sent him down to Jerusalem, hundreds of miles to the south, so that he might train under the rabbi Gamaliel, the greatest rabbi of his day. This training led the young Saul to become a Pharisee. And because of his education, his training, his abilities, above all, his zeal, 
he advanced, as he himself puts it, beyond any of his contemporaries. He was viewed as this rising young star, only about 30 years old and already entrusted with these important missions and viewed as someone who had a bright future ahead of him among the Jewish people. He would have probably been part of the Sanhedrin. We know that because he talks about how he cast his vote to send people to the death. So he probably was part of the Sanhedrin. That means in Acts chapter 5, when Peter and John and the rest are dragged before the Sanhedrin, Saul was probably there. But we're not formally introduced to him until a mob scene just outside the city of Jerusalem. Now that mob consists of the high priest, other chief priest, of the Sanhedrin, of the rabble-rousers that typically make up those sorts of mobs. The leaders of that mob have thrown off their outer garments. They don't want anything to hold up their arm movements. They want to be able to cast stones with accuracy at the bruised and bleeding man who's there in their midst. That man is Stephen, a Christian, a man, we're told, who was full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. He's been judged guilty of blasphemy. And so he's being stoned in accordance with the law of Moses. Saul approved of the mob's actions. In fact, in chapter 7, verse number 48, we're told that they laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. He held their coats while they stoned him. This event kickstarts the first really proactive period of persecution of the church. And it seems that Saul is a leader, if not the leader of this. Chapter 8, verse 1, Saul approved of his execution, that is, Stephen's. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So this persecution breaks out, and as a result, Jewish Christians have to run for their lives. They're dispersed over all parts of the Roman Empire. And evidently, a number of them found their way to Damascus, the Syrian capital, about 160 miles to the northeast of Jerusalem. Because Saul is a zealous man, he wants to pursue those heretics. He goes to the high priest and he asks for permission to go and hunt them down and, and root them out. Chapter 9, verse 1, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The high priest Caiaphas was evidently impressed with Saul's boldness. This was a, a sound plan, and Saul seemed like just the man for the job. The journey from Jerusalem to Damascus was a fairly arduous one, but it evidently passed without incident until they were just almost to Damascus. And then a strange thing happened. Verse number 3. 
as he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And a voice thundered out of the light. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul's stunned. He doesn't know what's going on. Is that you, Lord? And then the voice responds, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Jesus? Not, not Jesus. That, that can't be right. Saul is faced with the unthinkable that all of those disciples of Jesus were actually following the God of his fathers. That means that when he was complicit there in Stephen's death, he, he murdered a man in cold blood. That means that all of those men and women that he dragged off to prison were actually faithfully serving God. Jesus was the one who the prophets had spoken about and pointed forward to. What was Saul going to do? The voice told him, get up, go into the city. You'll be told what to do next. And Saul complied. He was struck blind by that light, but they helped him to his feet. He went into the city, and for three days, he spent his time in prayer and in fasting. In the meantime, Jesus appeared again to another one of his servants, a fellow named Ananias, and he told him about Saul's new mission down in verse number 11. He said, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying, and he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, if you remember this story, Saul's reputation evidently precedes him. Ananias is more than a little reluctant. But ultimately, Jesus tells him, verse 15, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Ananias goes to him, he heals him, Saul's baptized, as he puts it himself later in recounting this, chapter 22, verse 16, uh, Ananias told him to arise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. This is an extremely important mission that Saul has been handpicked for, to go and to carry the name of Jesus before Gentiles, before kings. Why Saul? What makes him so special? Why is he the man for this job? I think there are a few things in his background. For one, we've already spoke about how well-educated he was. There in Tarsus, Saul would have been educated in Greek. He's able to speak Greek. He's able to read it. He's able to write it fluently. And of course, this is the international language of commerce in the Roman Empire. This would have made him really unusual if he'd been born in Palestine. Most everybody on the street knew at least a little bit of Greek, some more than others. They had to know it to get by and to converse with people from foreign places. And even the Twelve, uh, you know, I imagine, well, like a lot of people know Spanish today, and I figure that their Greek was probably a lot better than my Spanish is. But Saul is 
fluent because of his education. And not only that, Saul, because he's been educated in a Greek school, he knows all about Greek ways of thinking. He knows about their literature. He knows about their philosophy. He's been trained in rhetoric. He knows how to argue in a way that's appealing to a Greek mind. All of that's going to be critical for someone who's going to go preaching throughout the Mediterranean world. But remember, too, that Saul is also educated in the Jewish law by the rabbi Gamaliel. Now, he said he was the greatest rabbi of his day, but the Mishnah actually says, that's the written version of the oral law, since Rabbi Gamaliel the elder died, there has been no more reverence for the law, and purity and piety died out at the same time. So this is the degree of respect that Gamaliel had. Saul learns under him. He is an expert in the Old Testament scriptures. He's an expert in the Jewish law. He's also fluent in Hebrew. The scripture that was read a few moments ago when he describes himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. That means that he spoke the Hebrew language and he could read it. That's unusual because Aramaic, a related language but a different language, was the common tongue in Palestine. Not every person could understand Hebrew. Paul could read the scriptures just as they were written down. So his education made him stand out for one thing, ideally suited to this task, going into these foreign areas. Saul's also bivocational. Acts chapter 18, we read that he was a tent maker. Jewish parents believed that it was very important to teach their sons a trade. The rabbi said, if you didn't, you were teaching them to steal. So Saul learned his occupation, and we know that he supported himself with it at various times throughout his career. And that's important. In a world of itinerant sophists, these teachers are going from place to place and are asking people to support them, basically milking students for all they're worth. Saul would never be credibly accused of just preaching the gospel for money. He's also a Roman citizen. We find that for the first time in Acts chapter 16 when those magistrates in Philippi beat him, throw him into prison without a trial, and then they get really nervous when Paul mentions the fact that he was a citizen. He ought not to have been subject to that sort of uh, justice there. That means that he had unrestricted freedom of travel throughout the empire. That means that he was freed up to a large extent from Jewish prosecution. He could take his case to the Romans. Of course, ultimately, he ends up appealing to Caesar. That's how he gets to Rome to preach the gospel there. That Roman citizenship also allowed him to mingle with all levels of society everywhere he went on his travels. There are probably other things we could say, but above everything else, I think Saul was chosen because of his zeal because of his single-minded devotion to God. Someone who'd been so zealous, so passionate about persecuting Christians, people he thought were God's enemies, could now be redirected and exhibit that same zeal, that same passion on behalf of the followers of Jesus. And that's exactly what we find. After he's converted after his encounter with Jesus, after his commissioning here, Saul, or as we know him better once he gets out into the larger world, Paul, is a man on a mission. 
We see that best summed up in Philippians chapter 3. We read part of this earlier. But he enumerates here all of his credentials. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. List some of these things I've just talked about. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But he says he gave all of those wonderful worldly credentials up to follow Jesus. Verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. King James, you remember, says dung there, and that's really a better translation here. Now, Paul thinks they're completely and totally worthless. It's refuse. I count them as dung in order that I may gain Christ. Verse number 12. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, all of those things we talked about, and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. His purpose in life was completely and totally changed. And that purpose was all-consuming. You walk your way through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13, we see Paul first set out on his mission. And his strategy is basically identical in every location he goes along the way. He'll go to some major urban area located along a trade route, a population center. And then, first of all, he'll go into the synagogue. He'll preach about Jesus to Jews and to God-fearers, these Gentiles who are sort of on the, the edges of the synagogue. He makes some converts there. But when, ultimately, because this always happens, the Jews turn up upon him, he goes then to the Gentiles. He takes the gospel to them. He stays there, and if things are good, he can stay in this city for a while. He can even go out and send his associates out to evangelize the surrounding areas like he does in Ephesus, for example. But ultimately, once it's time to move on, things get a little too hot, he continues on down the road, but he leaves a church planted there behind. And then he goes to the next urban area on the road, rinse and repeat. Over and over, that's what he does throughout Acts. So first of all, in Acts 13, he goes on a preaching tour with Barnabas. They set out to Cyprus. Then they go through southern, what's modern-day Turkey. They establish churches in places like Iconium and Derbe and Lystra. Then when they're going to set out again, he and Barnabas have a falling out. So Paul takes a new companion, Silas, and they revisit some of those places, Derbe and Lystra, and Paul wants to continue on to the west, probably over towards Ephesus. But the Spirit forbids him. He can't preach anymore in Asia. He doesn't know what he's going to do until he gets this vision of a man in Macedonia. He says, come over to Macedonia and help us. So Paul does that. First of all, he goes to the city of Philippi and he preaches the gospel there. He finds a woman named Lydia who's a merchant, a seller of purple out there by the riverside praying. He not only converts her, but he baptizes her whole household there, probably her employees. 
Then he cast a spirit of divination out of a slave girl. That upsets her masters because they've lost their meal ticket, and that's when Paul gets thrown in prison there in Philippi. But if you remember, that's when he and Silas have their prison revival, and their jailer, along with all of his household, is converted that night. Paul then continues on down the road, and he preached and established churches in a number of cities, Thessalonica, Berea. He goes to Athens, and he preaches there at the Areopagus on Mars Hill about the unknown God to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. He goes over to Corinth, and he has such success that he stays there for 18 months. Later on, he goes to Ephesus, and he spends about three years there. And, of course, we didn't even mention that along the way, somehow, he finds the time to write about half of the New Testament. We could obviously go into a lot more detail about what Paul actually accomplished, but most of us here tonight know the outlines of this story, and we don't want to be here overly long. But we look at Paul, and he seems almost superhuman to us, doesn't he? I mean, we think about the 12, and especially after this study, we really start to think about it, and I think most of us can see, okay, yeah, I, I can see myself in those guys, stumbling around, uncertain, sometimes lacking faith, sometimes outright thick-headed and stupid. That's what the gospel writers say. They're fallible. They're flawed. They're a lot like us. Yeah, they're ordinary. I can see myself in them. But Paul, what do we have in common with Paul? This man with all of this ability, this education, this courage, this zeal. What can we learn from Paul? I think there are several things we could mention. I just want to mention three here briefly this evening. First of all, Paul shows us God should be the focus of our passion. Paul was a man of great passion, great zeal when it came to God. Uh, he says that there in Philippians chapter 3, that concerning the law, he was, he was zealous. He's a persecutor of the church, he says. See, before he met Christ, he channeled that zeal into doing everything that he could to destroy followers of Jesus because he thought that's what God wanted. After his conversion, he redirected that zeal and he used it to serve Christ to the best of his ability. But the point of this is Paul, above everything else, was completely, totally, single-mindedly serving God. Our passion reveals what's most important in our hearts. For Paul, his passion was serving God. What is it for us? Are we single-mindedly devoted to Him like Paul was? Or do other things take the place that God should have in that hierarchy of our life? Do we push Him out for, for our career, or for our families, or for our hobbies, or for politics, or whatever else it may be that we're passionate about? Does God have that first place, or are we zealous about other things? We need to try to make Him our top priority and be zealous about that. Second thing we can learn from Paul. Never lose sight of your calling. In the years after his conversion, 
Paul told the story about what happened to him at least twice. We have it recorded in Acts, first of all, before an angry mob in Jerusalem, Acts 22. And then later on, he makes a defense of himself before King Agrippa, Acts chapter 26. To Paul, that event was every bit as vivid and significant as he went on through life as it was when it first transpired. Now, our conversion, obviously, is not nearly as, as fantastic in manner as Paul's was. I mean, I didn't have a light that blinded me and the Lord didn't speak to me directly on the road or anything like that. But it does raise the question, are we as excited as we were when we first became Christians? Are we as zealous as we were? I've seen a lot of people who are totally on fire when they're first baptized and they want to go out and accomplish all sorts of great things, but it turns out that, well, this isn't a sprint. This is a marathon, and they get pretty worn down, and they lose their energy, and at some point, some of them even fall away. You're here tonight. Maybe you haven't fallen away, but you're just sort of going through the motions. You're running on fumes because you don't have that same fire in your belly that you once did. Do we see our conversion as this same pivotal, pivotal transformational, life-altering experience for us that it was for Paul? He was going one way, and then he's going in a completely different way after that. It was life-changing. We need to remember our calling to serve Christ. We need to remember our purpose. We need to remember what God has done for us in Christ. And just like Paul, we need to go out and share that with other people. Tell them about what he's done for us. Third, finally, God has uniquely prepared you, you, yes, you, for his service. Now, it's easy for us to see that with Paul, with all of the credentials we laid out. He had an incredible impact on the world of his day and an impact that reverberates into our own day. And with his education, his intellect, his training, all of those things, his skills, his abilities, these made him uniquely suited to accomplish God's purpose. But what really sets Paul apart is that in him, God found a willing servant. He found someone who was ready to completely and totally submit himself, yield himself up to serve God. To count all things as loss for the sake of following Jesus, as we read a few moments ago. Now, we've seen this particular lesson over and over again throughout the lives of these 12 men. Paul might have been particularly gifted, sure, but each one of these, as we've studied them, brought their own particular talents and abilities to the table. And God was able to use each one of them in different ways to accomplish his purpose. You may not think that you're particularly special, that you're gifted in any sort of extraordinary way. But you are unique. You have abilities and talents that no one else has. No one else is like you. And God wants to use you for his service. But we have to let him. We have to yield ourselves up to him fully and completely the way that Paul did. 
Are you willing to do that? To let God completely take control in your life? Or are there areas where you're still holding back, reserving them for yourself? We might think that we can't accomplish very much. We may look around and say, well, I haven't ever done anything. And, you know, what, what can one person do? But the problem is we never really know what we can do because most of us aren't willing to completely and totally yield ourselves up to God in the way that Paul did. We'll never know all that he can do through us until we allow him to have all of us. Maybe you're here this evening and you haven't allowed God to have complete and total control of your life. If you've never yielded your life to Him at all, or if you're a Christian who perhaps has been keeping things to yourself and hasn't been what God would have you to be, you need to make changes in your life. Whatever your need may be, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.